dangerously close. My guest today is Madeline Ostrander. Madeline is a science journalist and author of At Home on an Unruly Planet, which tells the stories of four American communities on the front lines of the climate crisis and reflects on what it means to make a home in this era of upheaval and transition. At Home on, Unru uh, on an Unruly Planet is one of Kirkus Review's 100 best nonfiction books of 2022. What's up, Madeline? Hi. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for being here. Uh, hey, I just read your book. Yeah? Yeah, and I loved it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. you. I'd like to hear that. You want to talk about it? Sure. <laughs> um, let's just kick it off. I was going to say, uh, it seems like uh, most people have been conditioned to think of the climate crisis as a far off scientific concept. You know, people are always like, the, the glaciers will melt someday. Uh, someday it will be you know, two degrees hotter, they, all these, that's how it's been my whole life. It's always felt like something they're talking about that's going to happen when I'm a very old man or dead, or it's, you know, that it's a problem for the future. But is it fair to say that your book makes the case that the future is here as far as uh, climate crises are concerned? Well, so I would say that the climate crisis is certainly here. And I mean, unfortunately, the future, um, it, the impacts are going to get worse. I mean, it, that's kind of a scientific guarantee because of the pollution we've already put in the atmosphere. But all that said, um, I think there's a couple messages of the book. One is, yeah, the climate crisis is here. We can see it right in front of us in the form of wildfires and huge storms and like major billion dollar disasters that we're ha having every year and heat waves. Um, like this last summer, a huge percentage of the country dealt with heat waves. Um, some of them pretty severe. And um, I think part of the message of the book is that we still have choices about the future and about how it unfolds and about how we experience these crises and disasters. So um, I wanted people to be able to understand it at a scale that felt real to them. So the book focuses on communities and on home and on places that people can identify with and see and and you know, understand what it means to to live there. Yeah. And uh, you live in Seattle, right? I do. I think uh, you brought up some points uh, just about like, so Seattle's a place that's like kind of my home away from home. I, I'm uh -huh. there. I'm there every year. Usually I used to be there at least twice a year. Now it's more like once a year, but for the longest time, it always seemed like a place like super mild summers, super mild winters. Like I was like, this is kind of the perfect place to live for me like because i like rain too so i i loved it but with the like the heat waves that are happening there like cause I, i'm always up there for the the solstice parade and those kind of things and mm -hmm. yeah in, in recent years it's been like uh like that one heat wave where it's like 100 degrees every day and i'm originally from tucson arizona like that's what the weather is like there but like <laughs> yeah in 2021 the the pacific northwest heat dome it got to be like 100 and I believe in Seattle and I write about that in the book at the end it was awful really and not you know I mean I think people who live in really warm places might roll their eyes at that idea but the thing is we're not one physically if you live in a cool climate you're not ready for that kind of heat and yeah. so it becomes really dangerous and two there's not a lot of air conditioning in Seattle so our houses are not built for that and um it's been really shocking. We had another one, actually, the week that my book came out, um, or the week before, there was a, a heat wave of 
several days. And I, you know, I lived in the Midwest for part of my life. I thought, oh, this is no big deal. I, I know how to deal with heat. And then I found myself feeling a bit of heat exhaustion after a few days of it because I just I just wasn't physically prepared for that kind of heat. And we are getting a lot more of those kinds of things like everywhere across the country. And um, heat waves are actually one of the most dangerous probably the most dangerous natural disaster. I think people don't recognize that a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, like like you were saying too, like people that already live in really hot places, they're like, oh, come on, shut up 100 degrees. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, this is affecting everywhere. And like I said, I'm originally from Tucson and I spent a lot of time in Arizona. And I remember one of the ho- like the hottest I've ever been has been in Phoenix. And I, I would say that's every time I've ever, the hottest I've ever been, it's always been in Phoenix because it's like the hottest place I've ever been. It's also uh-huh. the most rapidly rising in temperature city in the United States. But I many, many years ago, I went there with my brother when I was a kid. We went to um, Warp Tour, which the people of you know, the city of Phoenix decided to throw in a parking lot, like outside of a stadium, it's like on asphalt. And I was literally, I thought I was going to die the whole time. And I was trying to have so much fun because it's, you know, it was like a punk rock. And <laughs> but uh I had a point there, but I'm actually going to digress from how hot Phoenix is and go back to uh, the reason I even brought up that you're from Seattle is because you start off the book talking about wildfires in uh-huh. the Pacific Northwest. And massive wildfires are obviously uh, some of the most visceral indicators of climate change. Why did you choose wildfires as a starting point for your book? And was that maybe one of the reasons? Because they're so just vivid in people's minds when they think of a, of a, of a massive fire. So... I guess just to give a little bit of context about the book, the, the book um, tells the stories of four communities and they each go through a different aspect of a crisis that's related to the climate crisis. So I, I do start out with wildfires and there's, there's a community we'll talk about in a bit, I imagine, that um, goes through floods and another that deals with thaw and another that deals with kind of like an uh, fossil fuel industry accident or a series of them. Um, and in the first part of the book, people are dealing with this crisis. And in the second part of the book, there's this realization that we're all living in kind of a new world that's affected by climate crises. And so what do we do about that? And so the second part of the book is kind of a search for solutions. Um, so I guess I started with wildfires because in a large part, because it's the closest example to my home. And so with a way that I could tell readers that I have a stake in this too. I'm not just writing this as a passive outside observer, but like I yeah. am part of this world that we're living in where we're all being affected by, in my case, smoke and heat. And if you go further inland, or I mean, not you don't even have to go further inland. There, there are communities on the West side that have been dealing with pretty major wildfires in the last few years as well. But when you go inland, there's more fire prone communities. And so I focused on this one area of Washington state that's had huge catastrophic megafires you know multiple megafires over the last decade and um how they've dealt with those and how they've dealt with recovery and how you know how that's changed how they think about themselves um and it was a way of giving people a story they could relate to immediately but also letting people know that this is close to my home too yeah i maybe should have brought up earlier when i was just first you know saying uh, at home on an unruly planet that it's not a this is not just a book a, a, a collection of stories of doom uh, and like oh you know we've already it's over 
uh, despair, which is what a lot of people kind of expect to hear when you bring up. That's why I think a lot of people have like shut off their their minds to hearing about climate change at this point, because it's uh, maybe they're getting fatigued by hearing over and over again that it's it's hopeless. The fossil fuel industries are too powerful. They, you know, they control too many politicians. There's too much dark money. There's nothing you can do, you know, and that's that's not the case with this book. This book is a book of hope or that's how I interpret it is. Yes, there's all this. Uh, there's these disasters and, you know, scary things and and people lose their lives and homes and stuff. But ultimately, this is a book of we're a, an adaptable species and we are the stewards of this planet, like it or not. So I don't know if is that is that fair to say? Yeah. When I was thinking about the audience of the book, I was thinking about some interviews I'd done with um, the scientists and social scientists who work at the Yale uh, Program on Climate Change Communication. They do a series of studies on public opinion about climate change, and they divide the American public into these different segments. And one of those segments is called The Alarmed. And I think the time that I was writing the book, The Alarmed was about 25% of the American public, and it it continues to grow. So it's it's more Mm -hmm. than that now have a figure in front of me but um those are the americans who are I mean, that's a that's a lot of people <laughs> you think about 20 25 yeah. of yeah. adults so there's there's a huge part of the populations that that is really worried about climate change and um some significant percentage of those folks don't really know what to do about it they're really worried but they're just stuck with this worry and so i, I wanted to write a book partly for people who see what's going on around them. They see that we're dealing with these these impacts that are getting worse, like wildfires and and flooding. Um, And they want a sense of how do we we live now in this world? And in a way, maybe I wrote it for myself as well, because I have that same feeling sometimes. (laughs) Like, what do we do now? Um, As someone who writes about these things all the time, um, I wanted to give people a sense of, of power that they weren't just hapless in the face of all these things. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes these facts and figures can be very frustrating because uh, what you just brought up, I actually just very recently had a uh, guest on this podcast who does, he has an organization called the Environmental Voter Project. And mm-hmm. the purpose of it is to get more people to vote along the lines of, you know, environmentalism. And and they focus specifically on non-voters, people that don't vote at all, but environmentalism is a concern of theirs. But if you look at just Americans in general, most people care about climate change and most oh, yeah. people are concerned about it. But if you, the, the way they break it down, because it's all this behavioral science and a lot of stuff that I don't mm-hmm. super understand how they get to these figures, but these talking about like, you know, in these major elections, it'll be like 2% of the voters. The environment is their primary concern. So the, uh, the elected officials, the people that are running for office, they don't focus on the environment because they don't have that, motivation that's in front of them because some other issue is going to gain them more votes so it's i guess it's actually actually even more complicated than that in some ways and you're right these these figures get a little messy and i I should clarify that when i said that there's this segment of the alarmed like those are the people that are like you know they wake up at night worrying about the climate crisis (laughs) or the most worried or the people who are willing to go out in the streets and march or the people who say i want to start a solar company yeah or the the people who are just, I mean, it, you know, it's not necessarily defined by what they're doing, but it, but it's the people who are by far the most concerned about climate change. It's the thing that keeps them up at night. 
Um, but there, but yes, the majority of the country is concerned about climate change. So there's another big segment that's, um, I believe they're called the concerned. When you add them all up, when you add up all of the people, the majority of people in the country are concerned about and understand that climate climate change is affecting them. But then when you get to, to voting, um, you know, things divide up along partisan lines. Um, Democrats are actually really concerned about the climate crisis, but um, I think that the Democratic Party take perhaps sometimes takes that as a given. Um, and so they, you know, it's not an issue they have to campaign on perhaps sometimes. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, depending on what's happening with the economy or what's happening with the pandemic, I mean, people don't always think of it as the, the thing that makes them make a decision. And, and I think some of that is just articulating people to people. How do they connect the dots? Like, um, Jonathan Foley, who's a, a climate scientist, um, writes about how climate climate change needs to be a kitchen table issue. Like it need, people need to understand how it's related in their immediate lives. And so, I mean, that's also part of why I wrote the book the way that I did is so people could see this is how it's affecting people in their homes at a scale that like I can relate to. And so that's why it should be important to me. Yeah, Absolutely you can keep just pushing this out further and further. I, I did do an episode last summer uh, called, it, I forgot exactly the title of it, uh, Dismantling the the Machinery of Mass Extinction. It basically, we were read Andreas Malm's book, uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and did a just analysis of it. But at the same time, I was really concerned. I was like, you know, I, I want to make sure that it's very clear to everyone that these are all hypothetical things that I'm saying. I'm not I'm not, you know, I'm like, in case the FBI is listening, I'm not saying blow up a pipeline. <laughs> and he's safe over in Switzerland with his ideas. Uh, <laughs> um, but oh, sorry, let's moving back to your book. And I, we're back to the, to the back to the wildfires. I was going to say, can you tell me about some of the people that you met uh, in the Pacific Northwest while researching your book and how they're choosing to react to the increasing occurrence and the devastation of mega fires? Yeah, um, there's a few different people whose stories I follow really closely in the book. One of them is Susan Pritchard. She's a scientist. She's a forest ecologist. And one of the interesting things about her story is that she started studying climate change in the 1990s, and she started studying what the model said about it, the impacts on wildfire. And so she she could see this coming, right? Like so many scientists, she could see this coming and knew that there were going to be more and more big fires and really intense fires. Um, but it's very different to know it hypothetically and then see it come to your home. So in 2006, there was a big mega fire in the wilderness near her home, which is um, on the east side of the mountains here in Washington state. And then in 2014, there was this massive fire, still the largest on record in Washington state called the Carlton Complex, which burned all around the area that she lived in. And so she's viewing these impacts um, from wildfire, both as a scientist and also as a, you know, it's just a person who lives there. So there's the emotional impact and then there's her understanding as a researcher. But one of the things she studies is how um, certain kinds of practices and certain kinds of strategies can actually make a lot of forests and a lot of ecosystems better able to withstand fires and less likely to have great, big, intense, hot fires. And some of those strategies and, and practices like prescribed fire go back many, many generations to the way that indigenous people used to manage the landscapes in North America. But 
there's a ton of, I should say, and in addition, there's a ton of, of scientific evidence also about how effective those kinds of strategies are. And in, you know, in, in her mind and in talking with her, there's, I, I could understand that she had a really hopeful vision of how we could restore a lot of landscapes across the country and protect ourselves against having really bad fires, um, which doesn't, isn't to say that we're not going to have fires. We're always going to have fires. Um, yeah. These landscapes are, are landscapes that have been shaped by fire. And I think that's, that's maybe something get, that gets lost when people understand how this is happening. They think, oh, we're having these terrible wildfires now. There's always been wildfires in the past, but I, I, I oh, there was something uh, in your book, and I I may have heard it before, but I just this has been so long, and it seemed very new to me again, and I don't remember exactly which type of tree you were saying it was, but uh-huh. uh, the seeds of that tree, like the acorns on that tree, they don't germinate unless they've been in a fire. There's a bunch of different um, uh, plants and trees that are like that. Um, there's certain kinds of of pines that have um, cones that open up after they've been exposed to heat. That's what it was. And then the koyas also, so um, giants koyas um, germinate. Really, they germinate after wildfires. So in um, Sequoia National Park, for instance, when they had a wildfire come through, there are all these little baby sequoias that sprouted everywhere. It was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we live, those of us who live in the West live in a place that's defined by wildfire. And um, I think part of like that part of the book is is to come to terms with the fact that we also live in an ecosystem that we have to take care of. And then one of the other characters I follow in that part of the book is a firefighter and a small town mayor named Carlene Anders. And she leads her community through this incredible recovery process after the fire wipes out a huge part of her hometown along the Columbia River. And that effort to rebuild houses and raise money and help people just clean up and also help people think about how do we prepare for the next wildfire because they think there's now an understanding that fire is going to keep coming. Um, that effort has become a model for communities around the country. So she goes consulting in different places. Like she's she's gone to work with folks in Paradise, and you know she's gone to work with folks in other parts of Washington State that were um, really heavily hit by fires in 2020. So um, I I chose to focus on her story because it's it's both a beautiful story and it's it also offers a lot of lessons about what it means to withstand these kinds of, of disasters and come out the other side of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I, I do so much love that you take the time to talk about uh, indigenous people in that region. Uh, and you do so in other parts of the book as well, uh, including uh, in Florida, but particularly prescribed fires and just the, the fact that, you know, the, the people that were here first that were living in harmony with the land were, you know, they had it right the first time, <laughs> like in. Yeah, one of the places that gets a mention in the book, and I, I've done some more extensive reporting there also for a magazine piece that I did is the, the Colville Reservation, which is this huge, um, huge reservation in central Washington that crosses over into Okanagan County. And they've had a lot of really big wildfires. And also they have one of the most successful prescribed fire programs probably in the country. They've done a ton of work to restore thousands, I think hundreds of thousands, maybe of acres of of forest. And um, it's also like economical for them. They run a a really great sustainable forestry program. 
And um, so that knowledge is still there. I mean, those communities are still actively doing that kind of work. And, um, you know, when, when I've talked to folks on the Culver Reservation, I mean, that people have lost homes from wildfire, but I think there's an understanding that the impact could have been a lot worse if they hadn't done those kinds of forest restoration programs and those kinds of wildfire readiness yeah. efforts. So yeah there's all of those lessons are still there and and there's a lot of tribes that are actively doing this that kind of work yeah it's like in many ways there's like we we've had the answers forever we've just forgotten the answers and we just have to return to them um yeah we've neglected them i think really <laughs> i mean i know we could go on for with mega fires and force fires for a long time but i, yeah. I do want i want to get to some of the other locations in the book and uh so let's just jump from mega fires to floods let's i guess you know uh, that's kind of uh i think that's the the way you did it in the book too which i think is a good transition you know like give your your give your brain a break from fire um but you you chose uh saint augustine as the location that you were like you you know because you're doing this kind of like ind- individual people's lives and individual locations and why did you choose saint augustine well so St. Augustine is one of the most historic cities in the country. It was founded in the 1500s by the Spanish, and it just has layers and layers of American history that are part of that landscape. Um, I, I mean, partly I chose it the way that I think writers and journalists choose things, which is that that uh, something comes up and, and you, know, you get an opportunity to go to a place. St. Augustine had a conference that was really fascinating called Keeping History Above Water which is all about how do you save historic places from sea level rise. It's an interesting okay, cool. a niche conference, right? But actually there's hundreds of experts from across the country that turn up to these from different fields who try to think about how do we protect these historic places from flooding and what kind of engineering strategies can we use and you know how do historic preservationists deal with these kind new kinds of threats. And so it was a, a really interesting moment to go to St. Augustine and talk to lots of people who are working in this area and thinking about um, how do we protect a place like this. Um, and when I got there, I found these really extraordinary people who were both working as professionals to protect the city of St. Augustine and it was their home. So they cared about it again on multiple levels. They cared about it as people who care about history and also yeah. they cared about people who live there and then I think just in terms of the theme of the book like a historic place is a a really interesting place to talk about what it means to be affected by climate change at home because home and history are intertwined like home isn't just a place or a house it's it's a meaning it's a story it's um you know we a place feels like home because we have a history there and Mm -hmm. so writ large you know, what our communities mean and what it means to, to live here in this country is, is really affected by the history of those places. So I thought it would be an interesting place to reflect on all of these things. Yeah. And I guess, of course, it, it, at first thought when you said uh, that conference, that it does sound like a niche uh, conference, like uh, protecting historic sites from sea level rise. But then, you know, just like, you know, after like a moment of thinking about it, I was like, well, I mean, Venice, Italy, New Orleans. I mean, there are a lot of, if you really start thinking about it, there's countless places that are under threat of sea level rise that are, of course, historic because, you know, we all, places always get settled on the coastlines first. These kind of conferences might become something much, much larger in the future, too. 
I think they are growing. And then when you think about something like Hurricane Sandy in 2012, I mean, that not only drenched a huge area of the coast, but like huge iconic historic sites, including Liberty Island, where, you know, the Statue of Liberty is. So a lot of the, not the statue itself, but like the park service facilities were damaged. And I mean, you think about how much history is on the coasts on both sides of the country and how important some of those places are. And this isn't just a small niche thing (laughs) there's there's a lot of really important places that we we need to think about you know how do we how do we hang on to these or if you know if we are going to lose them because we are going to lose some of them um, what do we what do we hang on to how do we document those how do we keep what's important i I think one of the first things a, a lot of things that happen in my mind are very cartoonish when i when i first think of something and i was thinking like you know protecting the historical stuff and and from the rising water and i imagine someone like grabbing a a priceless painting and like running upstairs with it or you know to keep it out of the water but uh obviously that is not what the people in st augustine are talking about or at least not for the most part and did you did you come away from this with any like any ideas that you thought were innovative ideas did you feel like there were any innovative ideas that were being discovered I think St. Augustine is thinking about the same ideas that most cities are thinking about. And so it's a combination of how do we put out of commission land that's really flood prone that nobody should really be building on or that already has something on it and we should take it down. So, I mean, that's that's part of what, for instance, the FEMA bio program is about, but it, but it also happens through other means in a lot of different places. Um, how do we lift up places that are more vulnerable? So like raising streets and putting up berms and flood control stuff. Um, and then um, there's always this question out there of, of big infrastructure, like um, should we put in some massive floodgate, which is what Venice has tried to do with kind of mixed success. And that's really expensive, of course. Yeah. And um, it's something that a lot of communities can't afford. And there's always a question of, did you build it high enough? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Estimates of how big sea level rise are going to be and how massive, you know, and intense storms are going to be change a lot and conditions can change. So that gets complicated. Um, and then there's little things like a lot of what happens with the city um, in, a, in flooding is that water comes up through the storm drains. So there's a lot of things to, you know, kind of out of sight with, drains and sewers to try to keep water out. Um, I think St. Augustine had done some really important, and I think it's probably fair to call it innovative. I mean, they've done some really important studies and mapping to try to figure out where is the water actually going to be? And also, how is that going to affect us as a historic city? So what are the properties that are most at risk? And what does that really mean? So they could have a clear-eyed sense um, and they did that in a lot of detail. And I think that's really important. It's important. Um, it's important for just a community to come to terms with what's at stake. And I think also, I mean, one of the, the book isn't a book of doom, but there is a bummer moment in the book where I have to acknowledge that St. Augustine and really a lot of places along the coast are ultimately, if you go decades ahead or, you know, centuries ahead, it's not clear what the time scale is yet, but those places are going to be underwater. We've already kind of made that choice by way of 
again, the amount of pollution we put into the atmosphere. But that can happen slower or faster, and we can buy time through some of these strategies so that people are able to adapt and move. And um, I think that time is important. And I think, you know, the time to to let people adjust and to try to save what matters is really important. So that's part of the lesson of the book as well. Oh, yeah. And I, I think you've brought this up twice now. And it's it's so it's one of the like when we talk about like certain figures and facts being frustrating. And that's just to me as a, a layman, you know, and someone who's just that I'm very interested and I'm concerned. And this is, you know, an important topic to me, but I am not a scientist and I'm not a climatologist. And it must be just in fury. I don't I don't I can't even describe the emotions that a lot of these scientists must feel when they just keep saying over and over again to leaders and own, you know, leaders of industry, like, hey, here is a here's data, hard facts, this is happening, and they're just ignored. And I kind of like that's why I was I was very pleased with the success of the movie Don't Look Up. Cause I was yeah. just like, this is such a it, I'm glad some someone finally kind of made a movie that was such a perfect analogy for what's happening in real life. I mean, I, I know they switched it to comets, but what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there definitely is that tension there in the scientific community. I think, again, um, part of the the way that I chose to write the book was to focus on what was happening in these, these local communities where it is more possible to get people to listen and to get people to get together and come up with solutions. And while that... You know, I think that might sound small to some people in the face of this giant global crisis. It, it's not really. Um, I had a, a call, a talk recently with Bill McKibben, and um, he was talking about how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to have to happen community by community. Like those pro- programs that change houses over from gas to heat pumps or, you know, electrify a lot of the country so that we're not all burning fossil fuels all the time is going to have to be organized on a community level because that's where people live and we're talking about changing people's homes so if you if you add all of these things up if you take saint augustine and you you know you add dozens of other cities to it that that learn from those kinds of strategies and we find ways to you know to adapt around the coast and then you take stories like um I'm sure we'll get to this in a second, but like Richmond, California, which is trying to think about how we we get away from fossil fuels and and have greener economies and and different kinds of opportunities. And you multiply that across the country, that can get us a lot of the way to where we need to go. So, oh yeah, yeah, and the, I 100% believe in doing things on a local level, community by community. Uh, just my, the city I, I live in, Nashville, Tennessee. It's a it's a flood city. We have massive floods. There was one. There's one in particular that got us like international coverage. Uh, that might have been ten years ago now. But we've had plenty of floods since then. But that was the one. All all of downtown went underwater. You know, you could you could kayak down Broadway, and you know, and it was actually pretty sketchy because the closer you got to the river, the more likely you could just get washed away because it was there was a it was a crazy flood. I was on the freeway when it happened, and cars were just like the uh, ditch on the side of the road had become like its own river and i was just watching cars about the same size as my car floating back the other way <laughs> i managed to get off the freeway like I, I got to the next exit and got stranded in some little town and just <laughs> hung out at a gas station uh but that's kind of like that's not really the point the point is you know this town is already prone to floods and we have this what i consider a big problem with developers 
And what they're doing is they're getting rid of all the trees. Anywhere where there's trees, they cut them all away and they build uh, tall skinnies, uh, those kind of San Francisco style houses, because they can put as many as possible on a lot. And I don't, I don't like, I don't have the figure in front of me. I wish I should just memorize it because I, I need to be able to bring it up, but it's something like over the past 10 years, they've like cut away something like 50% of the trees. And without those root systems, the floods become even more and more severe. And I'm worried, you know, I used to be like, well, I live kind of on a hill, but now I'm like, I don't think this hill's high enough for the next, I'm going to get washed away. So, you know, (laughs) people do need to think on a local level, like, what do you got to do? You know, who do I need to get kicked out of the city council to get rid of the, you know, to get these developers uh, some regulations? <laughs> oh, which totally brings me uh, to the next thing I really wanted to ask you, which was uh, obviously St. Augustine. It's a historic city. It makes sense that people are trying to save it and protect it and they should. Uh, but you brought this up a, a moment ago. Why do you think developers are continuously building billions of dollars of real estate along the coastlines? Like when you said, when increased floods and sea level rise, they're just hard facts. It's 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 only a matter of time before that land is underwater. And yet they're investing these billions. To some extent, I think the answer to that is sort of embedded in the question. Like uh, <laughs> those billions of dollars are pretty enticing. Um, but we also, we have a real lag in policies about flooding and about what the responsibility of developers are. So for instance, if you're selling property on the coast or in a flood prone area, you're not, there's no federal requirement to disclose the flood history of that place or that it's flood prone. So you could sell your house to somebody and, you know, they, they might not know, or, you know, you can build a new house and just sell to someone and not give any indication of what the, um, what the flood history of that is. Then I think in a lot of these states, there's been political leaders who haven't been willing to acknowledge at times the crisis that the state is facing. So um, in both North Carolina and Florida, there's, you know, there's been leaders who have either officially or unofficially um, directed agencies not to use words like climate change or not to acknowledge sea level rise predictions um, yeah. or de-emphasize all of that in planning. And so that encourages a sense you know, kind of a culture of of um, not taking these kinds of impacts seriously and not connecting the dots and not being realistic about what's coming. So th- there's a lot of different reasons. Um, I guess, I, I you know, I would also say that there are a lot of communities around the coast that are doing a lot of work like St. Augustine is doing, doing a lot of work to do adaptation planning to try to be proactive. And the trouble is that it's not coordinated. So, I mean, there also needs to be, um, in addition to all of these community level efforts, there needs to be a state level and national level policies and strategies (laughs) about how do we do this kind of adaptation? I guess one thing too is i I know that I'm doing that. I'm kind of asking you to speculate on something as well, though. And it like, yeah, because the the answer is in the question. I know what the developers are getting out of it. They're getting the billions of dollars. But I mean, don't you feel like wouldn't a person have to be a fool to buy a condo on the coast? (laughs) I mean, of course, course you want the beachfront property, but it's just not a good investment. I I mean, obviously, like I said, I'm asking you to like speculate in the minds of thousands of people that make this industry possible when i was doing interviews in saint augustine i talked with some just 
residents in various neighborhoods. And in some places, people, some, some of the folks that I talked to were very savvy and knowledgeable about sea level rise, understood what was coming, were making active decisions about their houses. But in other places, people are really new. I mean, there's a lot of people that move down to Florida, of course, because um, it's yeah. warm. Um, or, you know, move or North Carolina or wherever they, they move to seek out the sun and the warmth. And um, they don't have the historical context of what used to what flooding used to look like. It, I guess it became clear to me that pe- people don't always see what's in front of them. And I, I think I mean, not to keep going back to my rationale for the book, but, <laughs> I, but I, I do think that that's that's part of what I was trying to do is to help people see what's happening right in front of them. Because yeah. sometimes people see really obvious impacts. Like I, since the book came out, I've had conversations with various people like, um, you, you know, just at the coffee shop or whatever about about things like heat waves. And sometimes I'll be surprised that that, that they they suddenly are connecting the dots between the heat waves and, the, and climate change. Yeah. They, they just see the connection, even though it was right in front of them. So I think we need to understand that these are happening right in front of us at home. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's funny as you said, uh, as a journalist, it's not necessarily your job to try to educate someone that you might be interviewing, but it does seem funny to be like, to say something like along the lines of like, you know, wait till you hear about Greenland or Antarctica. If you don't, well, if you don't like I these guess what I should say is when I'm interviewing someone, it's my job to listen to them and not, not soapbox. It is. My yeah. job. I never want to in the middle of an interview sort of start haranguing at someone about, about climate change it, it means that i'm not hearing what yeah just 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 to a- absolutely like <laughs> speaking down to them get a glass of, get a very full <laughs> glass of water and start filling it with ice cubes and saying see this this is the ocean <laughs> uh all right we're gonna we're gonna leave florida for now okay. uh i'll visit again someday maybe i don't know but let's talk about alaska uh Alaska does get a decent amount of coverage regarding climate change uh, with, of course, like the iconic photos of starving polar bears on ice flows, uh, all the the oil companies uh, fighting to get pipelines in there to destroy more habitat that has been protected for, you know, has been federal, federally protected land for a long time. And but I'm, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're talking about the people. And that's what you don't hear a lot about is the people in Alaska and I was just going to ask you, uh, can you tell me about the people uh, you met in Alaska, how the melting permafrost is affecting their home and what they're doing uh, to live with the changing environment? Yeah, so uh, um, the majority of Alaska has permafrost under it. Um, it's it's around 85%. And, um, you know, in some places it's deeper and more significant and in other places it's sort of intermittent. But Permafrost is like frozen ground, basically. It's like a, it's a kind of like a type of bedrock almost, or it was supposed to be. Um, <laughs> that's a mix of ice and and earth, and um, some of it's been there for tens of thousands of years. But because um, the planet is warming, and and in in Alaska, and as you get closer to the Arctic, especially the rate of warming for a variety of reasons to do with uh, I don't want to geek out too much, but but the but the rate of warming toward the poles is much higher than it is in the the, the latitudes that we're 
sitting out right now. So also, feel not- free feel free to geek out as much as as, as you like too. Anyway. <laughs> well, it's called it's called Arctic amplification, and um, there um, you know scientists are studying the various causes of it, but um, it's it basically means that Alaska is warming like really fast, and it's getting really warm, and and they've had just crazy temperatures up there in places that are not supposed to be. They're supposed to be frigid, right? So um, the the this permafrost under the ground has been thawing, and as it thaws, it becomes you know mushy and starts to fall apart. And so there's in remote parts of Alaska, um, there's there are about about there are more than two hundred native villages across Alaska, and some of them live in very remote parts of Alaska, and they some of them live on permafrost and they live in places that are basically falling apart because of this thaw. So I I went to one of these places it's called Newtok. Newtok has been dealing with um erosion and permafrost collapse for decades now. Some of it is just related to the fact that it's a very dynamic landscape. There's a big river that cuts through it and it, it's a very powerful erosive forest. And I've, I follow a few different people's stories. Um, the community is very tight knit. Um, one of the people whose story I tell it is named Lisa Charles. She moved in with her grandmother in 1993 from Anchorage. And it was in that moment, actually, way back in 1993, that the community said, we actually need to move because there's too much erosion here. But it's taken a couple of decades for them to be able to move because of just bureaucracy and the expense of trying to move a whole community and the fact that it it really hasn't been done in a modern context um, mm-hmm. in the way that they need to do it. They need to have a school, they need to have a post office, they need to have a healthcare center. So it's taken a very long time. And over that period of time, they've been they've been watching the land fall apart and the permafrost come undone and the river rip the place apart and the, and the erosion get closer and closer to the village. It's, it's been kind of ominous. At the same time, the community has been one of the most proactive, um, one of the most, in a lot of ways, innovative in terms of figuring out how to do this kind of relocation. They're now really one of the first that's been able to do you know, they're they're about halfway there. They've moved half the community, but they've been able to do it successfully. And there's lots of other places in the country that are going to have to do this. They're going to have to just pick up and move. And so New York yeah. is kind of like a harbinger. It's a it's a place that you can look at and think this is this this is the future for a lot of places. It's when you mentioned uh, bureaucracy and and also this is, you know, this is this is a crisis and these people need to move and the, the land is thawing and or the erosion. It's very serious. And I don't know why, but it just made me think of just, just a humorless person in an office saying like, I'm sorry, you haven't filed your TS nine dash eight, seven report, uh, or you did it on the wrong date. And so you're not going to be able to make this request again until August of next year. Like, you know, there's a, uh... A little of that kind of technicality, but some of it is just that um, agencies aren't set up to move an entire community to a place that hasn't been inhabited before. And um, it's hard. 
if you've never been out to these places to understand how incredibly remote they are. If you want to move someplace in the lower 48, like you, you know, you go and buy a house and there's already roads and there's power lines and there's, it's easy to put in a septic system. And there's, there's all sorts of things that are already there. But if you're setting up a community in Alaska, none of that's there Um, in these remote locations. The the place that they moved to had nothing, no roads, no, no power. Um, And so some of the, the struggle was because of that. Um, and then there were things like, um, you know, say you want to get funding for a particular thing, you need to show that a certain number of people are living there, but the people aren't going to live there until you have the the infrastructure there to support them being able to live. And so it, it yeah. became kind of chicken and egg problem. Um, and then on top of that, they were trying to get at one point they were trying to get disaster money and they didn't qualify because it wasn't a screaming immediate crisis. Like they didn't, they hadn't just gone through a hurricane or something. And so it didn't fit the definitions of disaster funding. And some of those definitions are starting to change, but at the time they had not. Um, And so that's really complicated too. Like we have this idea that you shouldn't respond to something until after it's become kind of horrible but that isn't really very good disaster (laughs) (laughs) fair enough i i rescind my uh contempt for the imaginary alaskan bureaucrat with the imaginary (laughs) uh with the imaginary paperwork that i made up so i'm sorry to that to any real alaskan bureaucrat who really did not do the things that i just kind of acclaimed happened (laughs) i was i don't I've seen office space too many times. That's what it was. It was <laughs> um so okay. We've uh we've spent some time in Alaska. We spent some time in Florida. Let's go to Cal- you want to go to California real quick? Sure. I've- can you tell me about Richmond, California and just kind of like what's going on there? What you know, what's the history just a little bit and uh what are the people in that city trying to do to transform their home for the future? So the story of Richmond closes out the book and it's um I put it there for a few different reasons. It it's the story that brings together a lot of the different themes of the book. And it's also a place where people are really innovatively and creatively reimagining what their city can be. Um Richmond is a community that's built right next to 120 or really around a 120-year-old oil refinery that's run by Chevron. And um, that community grew up during the World War II era around all of this old industry. And then in the mid 20th century, things kind of start to fall apart. And for a lot of reasons to do with a combination of just, um, you know, the way that the American economy has gone in industrial areas and also discrimination and environmental racism, people were left in a place that didn't have a lot of economic opportunity um, in the 80s. The crack cocaine epidemic came, you know, up and down the the country and really ripped through this community and created a, a wave of of suffering and crime. And um, the main person whose story I follow in this book is named Doria Robinson. She grew up in that period of time in the 80s. She grew up in a historic Black community that was very tighten it and was all about organizing things together to try to lift people up and to try to 
build things and train people with new kinds of educational opportunities, employment opportunities. And they were constantly having to deal with this stuff in the background of, of crime and, and, you know, overall poverty in the city. And then on top of that pollution from the oil refinery and, um, in the 80s, there were some big incidents with the oil refinery and fires. Um, and then she left and she came back and she decided to start this organization, or sorry, rather get involved with this organization and then lead it, that would literally try to grow something new in this place. And I say literally because she started all these urban farms and they tried to grow, they grew vegetables all around the city and it's expanded into this really beautiful organization. And I think that gave people a vision of what else could happen there. And so it's along with that has has been all of this other kind of economic development, green jobs and um, some organic food companies moved into the city and um, solar companies are in the city. And then in 2012, they had a big refinery fire, like one of the largest ones. And I think because people had been building all these new things and reimagining things, they were really angry. And yeah. um, so, you know, some of the some of the folks who were involved in these projects and and some of the activists. And so it became a turning point where the city has since then, over time, been asking, what would it mean to not have an oil refinery here? Yeah. What would it mean to move away from this kind of economy? And I think it's a, it's a place where on a community scale, you can ask these big questions about how do we make the kinds of changes that we need to make in order to deal with this crisis? Because of course, at its root is our dependence on fossil fuels. So, yeah. and there are lots of like community level and local decisions that we make about how we use all of that energy. And it was a place where I could, I could tell that story and, and make people see it through the eyes of folks who've had to live with both the impacts and also had to, you know, find ways to be optimistic and come up with new ideas. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's also just astounding and not to, not to go on a tangent, but just, you know, 40 years later, people just now, you know, finally growing out of the, uh, the legacy of cruelty of the Ronald Reagan administration and, uh, just, I don't know, so much of what you mentioned there, just, it just, his name is all over it to me. And that's like, I just, you know, I can't help, but, uh, think of that, but also how important it is when you talk about on a local level, uh, people imagining what will our city look like? What will our community look like without an oil refinery and people all over the world need to start doing that, uh, even, you know, in major Petro states and also, uh, in smaller, you know, in countries that have uh, less of a reliance on petroleum, but everyone's going to have to start thinking like, what is our world going to look like once we get rid of these oil refineries because they're not here to stay. And I, I think one of the things about Richmond that makes it especially vivid is that people have both had to deal with these impacts of pollution. Um, and also the city is still quite economically dependent on the refinery. A huge amount of the local revenue comes from taxes that the refinery pays. And so it's a, it's a real question. How do we, how do we get ourselves off of our dependence on this? And it's a, it's a question that, you know, reverberates across the country. We all to one extent or another are dependent on these things. Yeah. economically. And so I think sometimes we, 
we don't get real about how how significant that kind of transition has to be and sort of the amount of of reimagining and and the, you know the ways that we have to change how we've built our communities um and there's lots of there's lots of important questions we can ask about that yeah. um that are I mean, I think I think we, you know, we talk a lot about things like how do we swap out our heat pump and and or, you know how do we swap out our furnace with heat pump or something, and that yeah. that's important too. But it's it's not just that. I mean, I th- I think there's lots of questions we can be asking. Yeah. On about about these transitions. Yeah, you know, it's important that you recycle your beer can or whatever, but it's more important that uh, economists come up with some kind of solution to uh, incentivize these energy companies to reduce carbon to pump the oil back (laughs) back into the ground (laughs) and i think probably the lesson of richmond is that the incentive in a lot of ways may have to come from political pressure from the grassroots because yeah at the even at the state level there's politicians are under a lot of pressure to um you know make things easier for the industry the there's the oil industry is really important for California economically. And so it's, it comes down to people, often people at the grassroots standing up and saying, we want something different and really holding politicians accountable. And you can see that happening in Richmond. You can see how their whole community, uh, sorry, their whole city council turned over. It used to be all Chevron supporters. And now it's a majority of people who are very progressive and kind of anti corporate really um and are thinking about different ways to um change the change the economic picture of the city um i should also say that uh dory robinson the person that i just mentioned whose story i follow was just elected to city council this last fall cool yeah also there having a voice in how you know it's got to start somewhere why not richmond california and i totally agree with you 100% 100% I could not agree more that it, it is grassroots it's got to be it has to be grassroots political power you know changing the the landscape because the people you know these these legacy energy companies and these uh dinosaur politicians that have been in there forever they're not going to change they're not going to change the way they do things it's you know it's it's going to be up to us and it's going to be up to the communities and the people that live on this planet so I couldn't agree with like I said I agree with you 100% on uh grassroots uh madeline i gotta tell you something we're uh-huh. getting dangerously close to the lightning round uh-huh. now let me tell you how the lightning round works i ask you a series of questions super fast you've got no time to think it is just straight up gut reaction you know just whatever the first thing that pops in your head that's the answer so are you ready to play it's it's kind of the it's kind of the game port portion of the podcast all right, all right. <clears throat> um Lightning round. Do you think the cartoon Captain Planet was effective at getting kids to care more about the environment? I don't know. I was more of a Ranger Rick sort of person. Okay. <laughs> uh, those are the, I, they're the things that the environmental characters I <laughs> Well, I've fair enough, but I've got good news for you. There's two more Captain Planet centric questions in a row we're added for this, and I've already written them, <laughs> so you have to hear them. <laughs> But but you know what they they really switched up here. I mean, I switched them up. So, uh, do you think that if they made a Captain Planet movie reboot starring The Rock, would that make modern kids care more about the environment? Wow. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm not, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. No, you you go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I just, I just um, God, I don't know. I, I don't know how to how to answer this. I feel like I'm I'm like the wrong person to ask about this sorts of stuff. But I I will say that I, do, <laughs> um, you know, having awesome ce- celebrities or goofy celebrities or uh, whatever, um, yeah, kids is good because kids often uh, go back and talk to their parents and okay, a lot. yeah. I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> a, a strong maybe we'll t- put it as a strong maybe okay. okay moving on this is the last captain america que- i mean captain planet question i'm sorry uh there are no captain america questions on here uh, <laughs> like i said earlier i couldn't help but notice uh kim stanley robinson author of ministry for the future gave uh-huh. your book gave your book some very high praise uh Thank you. and now, I'm not saying I condone some of the hypothetical solutions uh, to climate in that book. Uh, like, as you know, some because he was also influenced by Andreas Malm for some of that. Uh, but let's just say that if there was a Captain Planet reboot starring The Rock, where he used <laughs> <laughs> where he used drone strikes to disable oil refineries, mining operations, and whaling vessels, would that inspire kids to care more about the environment (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. do you think that any anybody would distribute a film that showed people doing like maybe maybe you could have some some heroes attacking uh oil vessels i feel like um i have to be careful what i what i say here like like you said i (laughs) i mean like let's I think I think the future that uh, that Kim Stanley Robinson envisions is a future where people are pretty on board with uh, sinking whaling ships and yeah. super super yachts and whatever it takes to get yeah. the uh, get the yeah. air <laughs> under control. So yeah, who knows? I don't know. I I I the Rock. If you're listening, Mr. Johnson. I mean, Dwayne. If you could make this movie, I would just. I would I'd really be pleased. I I would like to see a movie that has like sort of activist superheroes or like, you know, like activists as um, because I think that like activists are not well portrayed in like Hollywood things. They're often shown as being like they're they're like villains. Yeah. And um, I would love to see a movie for kids where like people are getting out and protesting and they're and they're awesome and they're superheroes and they're like solving problems and i you know that i think that could be great for the me... actually there are already some superheroes <laughs> like Freddie Thunberg who are yes no yeah oh my god yeah. <laughs> i was gonna i was gonna ask you I did, it was a question i didn't put on the lightning round because the person that was near me while i was writing it said that was not a good question to ask i was gonna ask who do you think is the next person that greta thunberg should get locked up <laughs> the... <laughs> because <laughs> that oh, oh my god that andrew tate trying to trying to own her on twitter and, oh god that story and, was and was going to prison oh. yeah um may i please have one uh one moment one soapbox moment i just want to bring up what you said about activists and environmentalists in hollywood this is something that i noticed even as a as a young person uh uh-huh is the movie Ghostbusters, which I love. I love the movie Ghostbusters. It's awesome. Who doesn't love the movie? But they make the villain, the one human villain, not the ghost villains. The main human villain is the EPA. 
It's the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, they make the guy act like an asshole and you don't Robin, like him. Yeah, uh-huh. he's, a, he's Shooter McGavin from uh, Happy Gilmore, I think. Uh-huh. He comes he comes in and he's, and he's basically trying to shut down the fact that they have a nuclear reactor in their, like, in their like condemned building. And he's like, this is not safe for the environment. And they're like, he's an asshole. <laughs> you know, kick him out of here. Like, So Hollywood has a long history of treating environmentalists poorly. Anyway, moving on to more Hollywood stuff. <laughs> celebrity, envir- <laughs> celebrity environmentalist face-off. Leonardo DiCaprio versus Matt Damon. Who do you pick? Oh, wow. Um, I guess Leonardo. I yeah, he's like an animal guy. So am I. So I know I know Matt Damon's like a he's like a water guy. That's kind of more his thing, right? Clean water. Yeah, I think so. And he's done some stuff on fracking, I believe. Yeah. But you know what? He did kind of tarnish himself with that Bitcoin shit. Uh, so which is like one of like and people don't think about this often, but Bitcoin is one of the most evil towards the environment creations of all time. It's it's like yeah. literally a, a machine that destroys the planet and makes imaginary money. <laughs> there was a story about a coal plant reopening because of of cryptocurrency. Like, oh God! <laughs> so <laughs> yes. Um, those those things are kind of a disaster in and of themselves. Matt Damon, you lose. Leonardo DiCaprio wins environmentalist <laughs> face-offs. <laughs> Celebrity environmentalist face-off. All right. <clears throat> There's a tough one. And you might say neither. I don't know. If you could magically shut down either the cruise ship industry or the industrial fishing industry, which one would you choose? Uh, that's complicated. Um, it depends on what you mean by the industrial fishing industry. I think that... So, okay. Uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, we have these commercially run tribal fishing companies, and I think if I can make the like make the country like all that because they do an amazing job, like they do all this like habitat restoration, so like um and just advocacy on in support of of salmon salmon habitat and shellfish and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I mean, if we could have like responsible industrial fishing, that would be awesome. Um and. Actually, one of the one of the fun moments in Kim Stanley Robinson's book is um, when he talks about one of the main characters going on a, a trip, I think, in like a blimp across the country. Yeah. If, we could, if we could just change how people go on tours, if if they could just yeah. sail around the world instead of being on big, you know, polluting ships, then I'd be all for that. Maybe I, we just need to rethink how these things work. I it's funny that we're bringing up uh, so. Ministry for the Future was actually like, it's a very impactful book to me because I think I was becoming a, a real cynic. And I read that book a couple of years ago and it really got me back on track of being like, you know what, with a, with the with enough people and, and and enough energy and here we are, you're like, you know, you're writing nonfiction and Kim Stanley Robinson's like out here saying like, hell yeah, Madeline Ostrander, listen to her. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Okay, this one's a really tough one. And you can even, I mean, I don't know. It's almost a playing God question. So I'm going to, if you could bring back one extinct species, which one would you bring back? Oh, wow. Um, hmm. I mean, that's really tough. I think that I'd have to like go, like get it together a bunch of ecologists or something and and like have a big conference about it or something because yeah. i think there's some species that um have gone away that were really important for keeping you know the yeah for sure check. um 
so these, kinda, yeah. these folks aren't extinct but like but like some of the big predators in the country like grizzlies and wolves and stuff and and black panthers like if we could like bring those back in a much bigger way i think we'd have a healthier country yeah. even though we have a lot of complaints about it from some parts of the country but, okay um, i'll make i'm yeah. I'll, cha- I'll change the question because it really uh-huh. was that it was kind of a crazy question. And also it is, uh-huh. it is like, what am I even saying? Am I saying that we're going to clone the animal or, you know, or <laughs> right, like <there's> weird <laughs> idea that it, like of, you know, trying to re-engineer mastodons or something through genetic. Yeah. And I, I, I find those a little dubious, but um. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting into, into Jurassic park territory. So I'll, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, re- I'll rephrase the question. You can, take one endangered species you have the power and whatever resources it takes you could get that you could pick any endangered species on the planet and get them off the endangered species list for good what animal would you pick so since this is a lightning round this is just off the top of my head but like um north cascades national park is is legit talking about bringing back grizzly bears and i'm i'm pretty excited about that so i feel, I feel like having grizzlies in places that they didn't used to be or yeah. sorry not used to be, that they used to be and aren't anymore would be exciting i mean not that i want to like you know go hang out in close <laughs> each one but, but yeah ex- yeah they're, they're, I, important. I, I, they're important you know on the landscape they they um, do a lot to keep ecosystems i have a, a very similar to you like i i love them as a i just love them as an idea i you know as like I love uh, reading like uh, native mythologies about uh, grizzly bears. They're super important. I Mm -hmm. would love to bring them back to all of their uh, territory, but yeah, I don't ever want to really get super hella close to a grizzly bear ever in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I could also put in there like Chinook salmon because they're like a huge part of the ecosystem out here in Seattle and, you know, for orcas and everything. So yeah. um, bring back salmon to the levels that they were before and i mean salmon are still really important here but like salmon populations were massive when this part of the country was first you know when european americans first came out here there are huge amounts of salmon and it would be amazing to see yeah. that it's it's such a tough question too because like i haven't like just watched a nature, nature documentary but if i had like they're <laughs> always like sir david attenborough i'd be like no no this such and such type of fox has become endangered and it's i'm i'm, I'm screaming at the tv no <laughs> so it's it's a i don't have any on my mind particularly grizzly is always on my mind mm. madeline i only have one last question to ask you it's the most important question of the day and it's this where can people check you out where can they find your book uh everything everything they need to know so the Easiest one-stop shop is probably my website, which is just madelineostrander.com. Um, but the book is available all sorts of places. If you walk into your friendly independent bookstore that's, you know, down the road from you and say, I really want to read this book, they might have it in stock. And if they don't, they might order it for you. And if you say, this is really great and you should have lots of them on your shelf, then that's yeah. all that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You heard it, guys. Go to the local bookshop. If they only have one, buy it and tell them to get 50 more. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Madeline, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.